This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. We are back as Colorado loosens up some of the restrictions about in-person business. We are doing a podcast in a socially distant way <laughs> here at the Craft Beer and Brewing Office this week with uh, Ross Koenigs of New Belgium Brewing. You are the Brewing Innovation Specialist. Welcome to the podcast, Ross. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. If you're a Craft Beer and Brewing reader a couple years ago in our IPA issue, you may have remembered we uh, talked to Ross about some of the research that he'd been doing on dry hopping and effectiveness. Um, he is currently writing a book for the Brewers uh, Association, Brewers Publications, on cannabis and beer. Yeah. And so we're going to talk about some uh, some uh, using cannabis and beer. We're going to talk about dry hopping IPAs. We're going to talk about um, doing this at a larger scale, what he has learned through that innovation process. And mm-hmm. I'm excited to be able to talk to you about that, Ross. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Hell, cool. I'm just happy to be out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> We've got all the doors and windows open here in the office. I've thoroughly Lysoled everything. We've got uh, copious amounts of hand sanitizer yep. at the ready, and uh, <laughs> and we are a distance apart, uh, also with screens in front of our mouths in yeah, order to, yeah, to keep absolutely. anything from flying. So we're, we're going to do this in a, uh, a healthy and sanitary way. Yeah. And uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Before we get started, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River, Ninkasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more trust GND to chill the beer you love. Call GND Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. Old Orchard knows that a strategic seasonal release calendar means higher margins, increased taproom traffic, and secured shelf space for your brand. That's why they collaborate with countless breweries on product development conversations year-round. With unique flavors like watermelon, rhubarb, pineapple, and plum, the possibilities are endless. Get your Old Orchard sample kit with free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Uh, definitely want to throw some thanks out to our sponsors for continuing to swarp this podcast through uh, you know a difficult environment for everybody in the brewing world. Um, and yeah, thanks for coming out and uh, sitting down with me today. Yeah, Ross. yeah. Talk to me first a little bit about your arc through brewing, um, how you got where you are today, what got you interested, and uh, how you ended up here in New Belgium. Uh, Give me the three to four minute uh, right. history yeah. of Ross. And it's brewing. a it's a long story. Uh, it, you know, really, I I've been in. I've been in the beer business literally my entire professional life. Um, you know, I I got inspired to homebrew by my older brother. Um, and he's a couple years older than me. I was still back in high school. Uh, he picked a, up a homebrewing kit in college, and I just happened to be visiting him down um, at his university. You know, one weekend he was brewing a batch of beer, and I just thought it was just the coolest thing ever. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, you know that uh, that kind of spun me out. Where um, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin originally, uh, and so There's we no had, beer there. No, no beer no. at all. Um, but at the time, it was basically just you know there was Lakefront Brewing Company right, and right. Miller. Uh, but um, 
you know, we went and, uh, you know, we had a family friend that ended up giving me my first job in the beer business, uh, working as a merchandiser and uh, basically an assistant, you know, running, uh, running beer around the city of Milwaukee right. uh, on trucks for a distributor. Uh, and so that kind of got my foot in the door. Uh, at that point, I did, you know, I've worked in as a distributor sales rep, um, you know, selling craft beer. Uh, I went out and did the UC Davis Brewing Program. So I uh, did a bit of education there. And then I started, um, you know, started brewing from there. So I worked for a reasonably small craft brewery in Illinois called Two Brothers Brewing Company. And then sure. uh, ended up landing at new belgium about 10 years ago so starting the cellar worked in the brew house and now i've been in innovations for six or seven years cool so, yeah. um so as an innovation brewer what is uh what's your primary focus is there a direction to this are you yeah, tasked so, with certain things yes. uh, how much of it is self-directed and how much of it is business directed it's uh it's a bit of both okay. um so you know there's two of us uh so basically you know new belgium really has put a lot of time and energy and capital just into innovation sure. so uh, we built our pilot brewery in 2012, so only only two years into when I started the business. Uh, but you know, more or less, uh, it kind of evolved a bit organically. Uh, that you know, first uh, I was brought on mostly just to kind of help provide some actual, you know, some actual brewing help. Uh, right, that right. we were just cranking out so many beers out of the pilot brewery that you know one person just couldn't really do the job. Sure. And so, um, you know, from there, then it was really just a lot of uh, encouragement and all that sort of good stuff from, you know, I, I was reporting to Grady Hall and Peter Buchard at the time. So, um, you know, they were just kind of encouraging us, you know, really like find what you're passionate about, find what you're really interested in and start specializing in that. Yeah. So um, kind of had a natural uh, split where I just was really interested in hops, hoppy beers, uh, figuring that sort of stuff out. So I kind of just started specializing in that and cut, kind of just picked up the mantle and ran with it. So uh, Cody Reif, who's our other uh, innovation specialist, uh, you know, he does everything from fruit beers, uh, he does a lot of lager work, stuff like huh, that, okay. that, you know, um, he is uh, he does some really cool work there as well. So, um, you know, yeah, we're a, we're a fairly small team, but uh, you know, we yeah. kind of we kind of have specialists that are you know kind of keeping their finger on the pulse of lots of different things that are going on in craft beer. Sure, sure, an innovation for a brewery the size of New Belgium is still an incredibly important thing. It tends to, yeah, there what well, a lot of work and then a lot of development and iteration until you yeah. can scale things to a point where it becomes a product that you then bring out into yeah. market. What's that process kind of look like for New Belgium? Oh, um, <laughs> lengthy. Okay, uh, you sure. know, so I think it's in, we've learned a lot through the years. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it's, um, we've started to adopt a lot of more kind of, um, big business sort of mentality just in you know in terms of like project management things yeah, like that yeah. we have like dedicated people who uh literally are just like making rather sure than all big of the, business let's call it discipline like, yeah, yeah like that, discipline. that's probably a nicer way to put discipline it discipline and it, organization in you know certainly i don't mean that in sure, a pejorative sure. way but you know right. it's just as you get to a certain level of size and complexity in your organization like you need people that are actually dedicated to <laughs> sure, sure, sure. making sure things function properly otherwise we're now you have 
just hundreds of people running around like a chicken with their head cut it's true, off. It's true. So you're developing new products, um, and you know it's it's a little different than someone saying, "Hey, this is the beer that we we just brewed, and it's in a tank, and right. we're going to write the name down on the." Yeah, on the tap board yeah, exactly. and put it up, and you know, and tell tell our servers the day that it goes up what it is. Yeah, you know, it's a little uh, more complex when you are getting buy-ins, orders, right. develop packaging, label approvals. You know, yeah. communicating that to reps across fifty states, and mm-hmm. you know, sure, sure. Yeah, it, it, I can't tell you the number of stories of like, uh, you know, some grocery chain somewhere on the East Coast has highly specific, um, you know, I'm using air quotes, but regulations of what can go in and out of their beer. uh, Interesting. And so, you know, it's like trying to accommodate lots of different needs around there. It's just a, it's a lengthy and messy process. But anyway, getting back to your question about like, what does that look like? Um, So, you know, we kind of have this kind of like intake mechanism. Basically, it could be could be organically started by us in the brewing department. Um, You know, it could be just anyone in the company. They have an idea for a beer Uh, or it could be, you know, we also have, uh, you know, we have a marketing team that we work very close with that, you know, beer and packaging and all that stuff matches. So, um, you know, so anyone in that intake sort of feed presents an idea, um, you know, that then gets presented to basically basically like, you know, senior leadership, um, all, you know, all those sorts of people that basically just kind of give it, right, you know, pass right. thumbs up, thumbs down, um, you know, then that basically kicks off the process into, you know, both into my world where, you know, the beer actually gets, you know, concepted out and right. then you have like kind of the marketers, they start, you know, drawing up package types and, you know, all the, all right, the graphics, right. all the, you know, all the needed stuff on the back end that needs to go. And so uh, as we go through Basically, um, you know, we work through, we have kind of like a rough concept in our head, like, okay, this is, this is what I want this to be. So, you know, say it's, uh, you know, I want to do a new hazy IPA that's going to be in the Voodoo Rotator series, and I want it to be nothing but Galaxy Hops in it, which is Starship IPA right now. So we'll just use Starship as an example. Yeah. you know, basically, um, you know, I'll kind of, I'll kind of play around with that. Um, you know, I'll make sure, you know, I work with our purchasing manager and all that on the hop end that, you know, make sure we can actually secure the raw materials. Uh, I brew in the beer. And so then, uh, we have like a group of all of our quality assurance people, uh, brewing managers, stuff like that, that then we start looking at all of the, all the data that starts getting spit out on the back end. So, you know, did we actually hit our, did we hit our ABV targets? Did we hit our apparent extract targets? Did we, you know, did we hit our bitterness targets? Like, what kind of flavors are we getting? So we start integrating our sensory program as well. And so then, like, as we start going there, we start kind of, like, picking little holes. It's just like, okay, well, you know, we're brewing on a 10 hectoliter system, uh, and, you know, we're fermenting in tanks of 2,000 hectoliters once we start getting to the big scale. So, right, right. Um, you know, so then it's just kind of like, all right, well, how did you do it? here and then kind of have like this very kind of um dynamic conversation as to you know how does this thing how is this thing going to go when we actually scale it yeah scaling is a little more difficult than just you know putting the numbers into your brewing software and absolutely uh, watching it go or even like how many you know small scale batches on your 10 hectoliter system might you brew before you feel like you've got something that you're ready to roll out Um, so it, I think the, it varies. Um, you know, I think the most we've done is probably upwards of 25 or 30. Um, 
it, honestly, that has far more to do with we can't agree with what the hell the beer actually is hmm. than it is um, the beer that I'm referring to is Citradelic. Yeah, um, yeah. Basically, it was this it was this weird argument. It's like, well, is it a fruity hoppy beer or is it a hoppy fruity beer? Like it, it just I mean, madness in retrospect. But, you it's, know, basically we're that's hilarious. <laughs> you know, um, a couple weeks ago, we had uh, Lindsay Barr on the. Oh, on the yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And it's so interesting to, you know, again, she came out of the of the, the New Belgium program yeah. and developed that sensory program, um, you know, but thinking about beer as a definition of being so tied to language yep. and whether the recipe and the sensory actually ties mm-hmm. into that is a real thing for you all. And yeah. that kind of verbal articulate definition of it um, is different than just the brewing specs that is yeah. as important for you all. Yeah, yeah. And big shout out to Lindsay, too, because uh, she was a very integral part of that process and helped sure. kind of manage a lot of the craziness out of that, where yeah, yeah. it was, you know, really it, at a certain point, I think it's it, you have so many different people with different opinions about what the spear would be. And, yeah. you know, Citradelic really was kind of a response to um, Grapefruit Sculpin uh, from Ballast sure, Point. You know, sure. that was just taking over the goddamn world at that point. And so way um, back then. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so long so, ago in like 2016. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like an eternity ago. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it was, you know, credit to Lindsay in that process sure, that, sure. you know, helping to really shape the conversation internally and like right. really help uh, help us identify that, like, you know, we're all using the same language. We're all describing the same things. And, right. um, you know, I think that really that really helped us get to a point where we can just have a little bit better uh, internal discipline sure. when we're right. talking about something. We were all, you know, talking about the same thing and not, you know, having having some people with just wildly different expectations. Yeah, and yeah. So, but twenty five um, pilot batches, twenty five pilot just, batches, just to, just to get to Citradelic, nail the recipe so that it matches oh, people's man. verbal definition of it. Oh man, it, that was that was a mess. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I feel for you. Well, talk yeah. talk a little bit about some of that scaling process. That you know, from a brewing perspective, that is fascinating to me. It yeah. is fascinating to think about trying to brew. Uh, uh, you know, hazy, juicy Voodoo Ranger yeah. IPA in a 2,000 hectoliter tank. I think most commercial brewers and home brewers, even, even like trying to conceive of how you do that, yeah. um, would think that that's rather insane. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Um, so, I mean, just to give you an idea of let's, you know, if we will pick on juicy, hazy IPAs for a second, uh, you know, normally how a pub brewer or even a relatively small brewer would do it is basically like, you know, you weigh out your hops, you know, you knock out your beer into your tank, you then get on a scissor lift or even a ladder or something like that, go up to the top of the tank, open it up, chuck your hops in, boom, you've dry hopped. Um, our tanks are couple hundred feet tall uh you you need to go through like two different buildings even to get up and access the tank itself and then even if you wanted to do that um you're generally throwing somewhere between one and two pallets worth of hops into your beer um so like uh just as a as a physical act that it like it's just not gonna work so you know uh, so from that i mean we uh, we ended up having becomes a big difference in like one pound per gallon dry hopping versus three or five then you start talking about just orders of magnitude of additional volumes yes exactly and so um and then you know been very well documented that you know just especially when you're throwing mid-fermentation hops like develop 
developing, you know, juicy, hazy uh, flavor profiles. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, really what we're then what you're looking at is like, you know, throwing all that dry hop material. You're creating a bunch of nucleation sites. Uh, you could potentially have like massive foam overs and all that sort of good stuff. So, right. I mean, even managing that in the application that we do, we're basically we have kind of like a slurry tank where, you know, we basically have a standpipe in the tank circulate it so you know everything is relatively reasonably homogenous right then you move the beer over to kind of like a slurrying tank you dose the hops in and then use the mixing uh even from that you would normally assume especially on a small batch uh even just the amount of co2 would normally lift and mix all of your hops into your tank right uh not so much when you're going up a couple of stories <laughs> sure, um, sure you know it's, it's a, a lot of hydrostatic pressure yes yes Stuff and always wants to settle down, right? Absolutely. And so, how do you it, overcome that? Um, mixing helps, but yeah. you know, we're it, to be honest with you, we're still learning. Like, yeah, you know, I yeah. mean, I, I think we're, um, you know, I think really what then you do is, um, you know, you understand where your flavor profile is at on a very small scale that that's very observable, relatively repeatable. Um, you, you kind of, it's a fairly known quantity. So right. you use that as really your basis of comparison. But then as you start getting into all these different processes, then it's really like you, you're leaning on mostly your analytical chemistry lab, but then yeah. also your sensory lab as well that like, all right, you know, as we're tracking all these batches, we can, you know, kind of track a lot of the key analytes, uh, especially within biotransformation, that then we can be like, all right, well, how efficient were we? Uh, and then, you know, especially even during packaging runs, we can actually then see like, all right, you know, at what point in the run are we seeing differing, um, you know, you know, differing volatiles quantitatively that then we can, you know, helps give us some better, you know, just better insight to how well we're mixing, how well like this is actually contacting with one another. So, you know, we're constantly tinkering. We're constantly doing that knob. Biotransformation sort of yeah. analytes. Uh, you're going way over my head here. Ross. Oh, yeah. Sure um, thing, man. Talk, talk yeah. to that. Yeah. <laughs> so you are doing uh, mid fermentation dry hopping on we these are. beers. We at are. That kind of scale. We are. Are, and when you um, say biotransformation analytes, uh, what? How do you define that, or how do you measure those? Yeah. So uh, the best understood, um, you know, there's kind of there's really kind of like three classes. There's like the terpene classes, mostly like monoterpene alcohols, like linalool, geraniol, all that sort sure, of good stuff. Sure. That you know they'll be directly metabolized by yeast and transformed into different compounds like beta citronellol, uh, stuff right. like that, um, alpha terpenol, things like that. Um, and so uh, we can actually then measure, you know, from knockout, you know, we're carrying over, or at the beginning of dry hopping, you know, we know relatively how much linalool or geraniol stuff like that that we're actually putting into our beer. And then at the end put, you know, we have a lot of very talented chemists that can actually, you know, look out. It's just like, oh, okay, here's your conversion rate over into alpha terpenol or beta citronellol or, you know, whatever. It's, um, you know, it, the chemistry gets a little complicated at a certain point uh, sure. because it's not it's not necessarily like a complete conversion and there's some other factors at play that then um, you know kind of show you how well you did but it's at least like it's a leading indicator for a marker so I, yeah, I think it's yeah. uh, it's definitely worthwhile to pay attention to. And so then and, you also and you have this analytical background to say that biotransformation does have this effect. Absolutely, it's clearly clearly worth you going through that kind of trouble absolutely. through your fermentation process. Absolutely, um, 
you know, now I, I want to ask a few questions about that yeah. because uh, we have a lot of we've talked to a lot of brewers where they know it happens and it's harder to find because they don't have that lab background. Right. But for you, mm-hmm. um, are there specific hops or compounds that, um, you know, and you all are you all you are, are fermenting with a variation of London Ale 3 or something well, similar to that? London Ale 3. London Ale yeah. 3. Right. So, right. yeah, we um, also um, we do. So it's interesting. Um, you know, you can also actually our house ale, just our California ale, WLP right. 001, um, actually is a really awesome mid-fermentation dry hop yeast. Really? The problem is, is it, um, you know, the we've noticed this. Uh, interesting little quirk with it that you know i mean it's a great flocculator and so um you just can't keep a haze in it yeah and so like you can do you can do bright juicy beer but you can't do hazy juicy beer so um unfortunately it's kind of one of the big laments of uh of my world and my life where it's just like man (laughs) you could honestly i think i think california ale is a better mid-fermentation dry hop yeast than even London 3. Um, I think it makes better flavor. I think it's cleaner flavor. I think the hops express better, uh, but it's not hazy, so consumers don't want to drink it. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're killing me. Come on. Let's, uh, I would love to keep talking about it. Uh, before we do that, this episode is brought to you by Hopsteiner, your premium hop supplier dedicated to delivering quality hops and hop products in every package. Visit hopsteiner.com for a complete list of offerings or select shop hops to start ordering today. Also, Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. They've provided the beer industry from large and small breweries to home brewers with the best fermentation yeasts since 2003. Their yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch your Fermentus yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentus.com. So we were talking about analytes, and, yeah. and this is really fascinating to me because, you know, obviously, you know, if you're taking certain compounds and they are becoming other compounds in finished beer that are pleasant and mm-hmm. uh, uh, enjoyable by drinkers and brewers, you know, then need want to go through this process. If you all, from an analytical perspective, have looked at what some of those changes are, yeah. are there some that are more pronounced than others? You know, are there certain hops that are strong in certain compounds mm-hmm. They see more benefit from that versus yeah. others where, you know, whatever, because they're heavy in other compounds that doesn't have as much effect on them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about it, looking at hop selection from that analytical point of view of how you're going to end up with what you want in a finished beer. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I would really say there's kind of like three three classes of compounds that you really could go out and try and look for. You know, there's a terpene fraction, which is... Lengthy and messy and complicated, uh, you know, I mean, definitely like things like linalool and geraniol, certainly very easy to kind of wrap your head around conceptually. Sure. Um, then the other things that, um, you know, really start kind of getting more into that like je ne sais quoi sort of uh, part of hops is, um, you know, things like uh, polyfunctional thiols, um, you know, they're sulfur-based aromatics that can be flavor and aroma active at like the part per trillion uh, level, like very, very tiny amounts uh, can make a really substantial impact into the flavor and aroma quality of your beer. So um, it's interesting. Uh, It's also very hard to measure. Uh, We actually, we don't even have, we've been 
I've been trying to push for us it's to a pretty get small the capability spike on your to do GC, it. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and so right now, honestly, like most of the work is actually being sent out to a lab in France. That okay. um, you know, there's quite a few of us. I, I'm not familiar with any lab in the United States that's actually being able to measure these compounds right huh. now. And mostly, it comes out of uh, wine production, like okay. you know, things like Sauvignon Blanc, stuff like that. That you know, there are yeah. a lot of a lot of similarities in that regard. Um, and then uh, the other one is hop esters, you know, things like um, isobutyric acid, stuff like that, that can actually be, you know, esterified into, uh, you know, something that's a lot more, uh, a lot more pleasant, let's put it that way. Uh, you know, sure, something that doesn't sure. smell like cheesy sweat socks all of a sudden turns into like, you know, pineapple and stuff like right, that. So right. uh, there's a couple of, you know, there's interesting things like that, um, that, you know, we can kind of pick on and, and play with. Um, and so, you know, I think it's like, you know, you, you think about something like a Citra, you know, sure. I, I would say Citra really in my mind is three big classes. You know, you got like big linalool and geraniol fractions. And I think especially when people think like Citra as citrus um i think that really what they're what they're picking on is uh not only the big linalool fraction that's certainly present in a lot of those mid-firm uh beers but then also it gets biotransformed into beta citronellol uh which also has a very like citrusy sort of uh quality to it so i think that's um you know that's kind of that big fraction and then um it's the the other one is the thiol fraction, uh, which is mostly like 4-MMP. Uh, so, you know, kind of that like catty black current, but eventually then kind of turns into the, well, I guess it stays catty, but, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, definitely kind of brings that kind of like rounding tropical um, gooseberry, somewhat lychee sort of um, even a little passion fruit sort of note to it. Yeah. Um, and so it, I think like when we think about that, it's, um, you know, sometimes it's easy, uh, even when we're picking on our own beers, it's just like, well, we're seeing all this, but then it's, uh, you know, say, especially since like, you know, polyfunctional thiols are highly volatile, uh, especially when you're in large industrial type settings and big yeah, tanks and all yeah. that sort of good stuff, it can be very easy to volatize those compounds. And so then it's just like, all right. You know, you get a beer that's, um, you know, mid-firmed with Citra, uh, which we have a couple beers at this point now that are doing that. It's just like some of them, you can get them back. It's just like, well, where's the cattiness? Like, you know, I mean, it's just it doesn't feel like Citra to me. It's uh, and so, um, you know, I think as we're as we're getting more sophisticated and more, you know, just get more reps under our belt doing that. I think we're getting better at understanding a lot of kind of the initial criteria that will set us up for success at big scale but you know it's still a learning process sure sure are there other uh, hops that uh, you find undergo a particularly interesting transformation through that uh, you know that mid mid for hopping process yeah the other one uh, two that i'll pick on uh mosaic is another one it it's a very it's an easy one to pick on just because sure. mosaic's delicious and beautiful Absolutely. and all that. Uh, but, you know, it definitely goes from, I think it's, uh, you know, if you don't mid-firm mosaic, uh, it has a really big monoterpene fraction, especially a big myrcene hit. And so it definitely tends to, the myrcene and a lot of the other, like, just straight monoterpenes will kind of crowd out things, especially if, yeah. like, you dry hopped at the end of fermentation, you know, all that alcohol solubility.
ability. Like if you throw if you throw a mosaic in the kettle and never in the dry hop, it'll still you know biotransform and be really nice and fruity. Hmm. Uh, but if you throw it at the end of fermentation, especially off of yeast, all that sort of good stuff, like you know it's just gonna be it's gonna be kind of a mercine bomb. So yeah. it's definitely a good one to throw mid firm. But yeah, you know, it just has that like berry and you know just like passion fruit juice i mean it's crazy it's just yeah. like black current city it's awesome um but the one uh definitely super classic hop that um you know most people tend to not think too much about is chinook mm. uh, that chinook mid-firmed especially um you know especially if you can kind of select for it um it just shows up like straight pineapple juice. Huh. It's like it is the craziest thing. We um, and we actually we've gotten you know in our hop selection practices we've gotten to a point where we've actually <laughs> narrowed down the Chinook that we like the best actually comes from um, the Treasure Valley in Idaho. Huh. So uh, we generally work pretty close with quite a few uh, Idaho growers out uh -huh. there and, you know, also work with our brokers. So we're just like, anytime we're selecting hops, we're like, we better see Idaho Chinooks on the table. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's kind of cool. Like, sure, you know, you, sure, you can sure. get into those really uh, yeah. kind of nuanced sort of things, but you know, we just know that uh, Idaho Chinooks are just like, it's pineapple juice. It's crazy. Yeah. It's awesome. Like, a, you know, there's just something in the soil there that just makes them show up. Um, you know, Washington and Oregon Chinooks are great too, but uh, you know, we just happen to have a, a very, strong preference for the Idaho's that you know it's always fascinating to kind of uh you know get a grasp on these and we I love and it's something that we've I've come back to over and over again in various conversations here on the podcast of looking at these classic hops in a little bit of a different way and finding yeah. new ways to use them mm -hmm. um classic hops noble hops English hops you know classic American sea hops um you know uh, and it's so it's fascinating to hear you talk about it in that kind of way that yeah. in that specific application with uh, you know mid fermentation uh, dry hopping that it uh, you know has that kind of effect. Um, let's talk a little bit about dry hopping volumes. You know this yeah. is something that uh, you've done a lot of research on. Yeah. Um, in terms of getting effectiveness out mm -hmm. of this now, as we all know, you know putting a term like double dry hop, triple dry hop, <laughs> quadruple dry hop. On, on any kind of label um, means that consumers are, are doubly or triply or quadruply in, uh, interested in that beer. Uh, it creates a new story for the brewery. It creates yeah. a new new thing for people to check in on Untapped. Uh, you know, I will will not offer my opinions on the, the value of that, <laughs> other than to say that certainly, you know, I mean, people like to try new things, and this yeah. creates the idea of a new thing within a parameter and a brand that a lot of consumers are, are familiar with, and yeah. so um, it fits the way that is being marketed these days. Talk to me a little bit, you know, but then you start getting into the actual volumes and there are limits to the effectiveness of these kinds of things and yeah. unintended consequences. Uh, talk to me a little mm -hmm. bit about some of uh, the research that you've done on these dry hopping volumes and uh, you yeah. know, what you all have found. Uh, so I guess I view, I view the double dry hop phenomenon kind of in two, in two sort of different buckets. Um, you know, there's definitely the one of like all of the, you know, fairly, fairly 
highly coveted, um, you know, beers from, you know, name the name, the very hot brewer right sure, now. They're sure. all doing it in, you know, including, you know, just plugging our own cellar club. You know, we're starting <laughs> to do double dry hop beers, too, That's which true. is That's true. You know, they it, I think they're pretty damn good. So, you know, it's I've had uh, a couple. I can agree with you. on oh, that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, you know, it's like, hey, even, even us, we can uh, we can do this, too. So it's uh, it. But uh, anyway, I'm digressing. Um, you know, I think w- within the double dry hop phenomena, I think like there's that like consumer appeal piece where it's just mostly, um, you know, you're just trying to hit like a level of saturation and intensity with hops that, um, you know, I think if, you know, especially for, you know, a lot of the brewers that do this, uh, you know, I, I've had a couple tell me with a straight face that, you know, like, oh, I can totally tell the difference between four and ten pounds per barrel of fucking dry hops. I'm just like, well, all right. I mean, aside from the fact that it's a little bit more intense, like, I, I don't think you actually can. Like, you know, there, there's certainly, like, there's a saturation curve, like, yeah, where you're yeah. sitting on that curve. Like, you're heading out towards that asymptote. Like, <laughs> where you sit on it, like, I don't know. I mean, you're, yeah, I'll agree with you that you're probably a fraction or two of a percent, maybe more more intense but um you know really uh, at the end of it it's also like you know you're also and you're running. talking to a brewer that has a very heightened sense for these things because it's what they do every day yeah and, uh, yeah yeah absolutely and so their ability to kind of um you know find discrete and finite differences is generally much different and much more tuned than for uh, sure yeah. and there's also in so like i I genuinely think it's a good thing and the beers are awesome. So, you know, I'm not like the results speak for themselves. It's uh, they're popular for a reason. Um, But, you know, I think it's also, I guess what I would encourage to any pro brewers that are listening, it's just like, well, you know, be mindful that, you know, you're still, you're running a business here. Like, you know, do you really need to throw in that 30 barrel batch an extra, I don't know, a couple hundred pounds of hops like to, basically get the same effect sure um i i question that business practice where it's just like okay you could probably shave out a pretty significant amount of hops and still be just about as intense or like adopt other practices you could do mixing practices you could do other things like that that are just better like you know overall just like getting better extraction out of your hops like i would encourage them to think about that pretty hard right that um you know while it's impressive and sexy to put on a label like yeah we use 20 pounds hops per barrel (laughs) it's like all right man like it great good for you but like do you really need to like is this is this really the place where we want to be going as a business so Uh, where does that uh, asymptote start you know for you all because and we're talking about that point at which you know the difference between you know each additional pound starts to become you know indecipherable or, or indistinguishable from each other yeah and so um so I apologize to all our brewers. We we do things in metric, so I'm going to be giving things to you in metric. Uh, pounds per barrel is just Greek to me. So uh, sure, sure. But you know, we it, kilograms know, per hectoliter. Oh gosh. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but you know, we really start to see like the the shape and the curve of the asymptote starting to form somewhere between like three and six hundred grams per hectoliter uh, okay so i think that would probably be about a somewhere pound is 400 grams so you're between yeah okay three, what you know 
pound, pound, and a half, pound. something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's kind of where you know the curve really starts shaping out, uh, and then so as you go out, I mean, you know, looking at the slope of that line, I think it's just it's all diminishing returns. You're definitely getting more in solution, but yeah. it's uh, it's certainly not like uh, on a one to one basis. So I think that's kind of like where where you're starting to break off, and so I think it. Everyone at a certain point with that, if you're breaking that cap, um, I think there's there's good reasons to do that. Uh, but you know, just understanding that where that's kind of where the slope starts really kind of like you know really flattening off. So it's very very diminishing returns. Um, but I did want to plug. Uh, there's actually a new study up uh, from the Shellhammer Lab over at OSU. They released it. Uh, I think it was in the ASBC last year or something like that. But um, they were they were showing that actually uh, they're working with uh, Dr. Sharp over at Ninkasi. Um, and they're actually showing that um, the double dry hop effect is actually very like highly efficacious uh, that they did a study. So say like basically they did a study where they took, um, you know, just for argument's sake, 500 grams per hectoliter and dry hopped it just like that. And then uh, they did another separate study where it's like, okay, we're going to dry hop 250 grams per hectoliter earlier, and then another 200, remove the hops, dry hop another 250 grams per hectoliter, and they have um, they have a indicator. It's called, the acronym's OHI, but overall hop aroma intensity. Mm-hmm. And they actually found that the double dry hopping just using uh, smaller quantities, even though you're using the same amount of hops, you actually got greater hop aroma intensity than you did just off of the 500 grams per hectare. So I, I, Vinny will require me to mention yeah. that that is not double dry hopping. That is two-stage dry hopping. Oh, uh, that's fair. It's yeah. two-stage two dry hopping. I will defer hopping. to Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> no, we talked about that yeah. on uh, on the podcast with him, and uh, yeah. you know, and he loves to make like they've been doing quote unquote double dry hopping, if you call it that. Is two stage dry hopping uh, since you know for a very long time for that same kind of reason, right. and it is interesting. You know, obviously, we have varying definitions about sure, these kinds sure. of things. So what double dry hopping is is it two times the volume, four times the volume in one yeah. addition versus this kind of multi stage dry hopping? But yes, well, so that and, that is an interesting point. And so I guess where it, it, I. Th- Two thoughts on that. I, I think one, like it is cool that at least showing that like, OK, you know, at least getting down in the chemistry of it, um, you know, as you're dry hopping and, you know, recirking and extracting hops that like lower quantities, just, you know, knowing that like extraction solubility at lower concentrations right. is more effective. Um, you can actually drive more into solution by using that method. But then also, like, at a certain point, all due respect of any, it's just like, if you're dry hopping at two kilos per hectoliter, and now you're double dry hopping at four kilos per hectoliter, because you're throwing two at two different things, like, it's kind of the same thing at a certain point. I mean, I <laughs> I, I will I will forever and always defer to Vinny, uh, but <laughs> I guess it's like, okay, yeah, if you're, you know, if you're dry hopping, you know, at lower quantities, I, I think the two stage probably works a little bit better. But, you know, yeah, it's yeah. still like it, it, we're kind of we're kind of talking about this. I will thing. continue to let brewers call it whatever they want to call it <laughs> in order for them to sell beer. To yeah, consumers. fair, enough, fair and, enough. You know, this is really it is more of an explanatory process yeah, for marketing yeah. purposes, because 
otherwise really, you know, like no one asks a chef how much salt they put into a dish. Right. Like, you know, I mean, it's almost a ridiculous question at some point. Yeah. Uh, really, is this the way that you intended to create this thing and deliver it to me as a consumer so that I enjoy this at this kind of level? Um, it is strange, you yeah. know, on some sort of objective level that we talk about ingredient levels like this in a, you know, in terms of marketing to consumers. Um, but I digress. Uh, it, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. And, it does, and if it helps, you know, helps brewers communicate what those flavors are, those intensity levels are to consumers and consumers are seeking out that kind of intensity in the beer, then it explains that to them yeah. in, in the same way that ABV explains, you know, that kind of level of intensity that IBUs kind of somewhat explain yeah. that kind yeah. of intensity, you know? And so, and so, I get it. It's 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 marketing. Yeah, you know, we'll just leave yeah. it leave it at that. Um, you know, at at some point though, you know, you start putting all that additional matter into a beer, and it has a counterproductive uh, or has some ability to actually start pulling things out of the beer as you add that back into it. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, have you all experienced that in New Belgium? Um, you yeah. Know? So, I mean, I think the biggest, you know, the biggest thing when you think about it is just like, okay, yeah, we've thrown now. You know, we're mid-firming or even just regular dry hopping, even, you know, any kind of dry hopping. We've yeah. now thrown a couple pallets worth of hops into a tank, and now you have green sludgy concrete that you need to get back out. <laughs> sure, it's, uh, sure. Um, so, you know, it, honestly, I think that's one of the largest challenges that yeah. we face. I think it's, um, you know, in, especially in the mid-firm application, and then it presents itself uh, in two different ways. You know, with us... Uh, you know, we're having conversations right now, uh, not to tip our hat where we're going at all, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's the the flavor profiles of mid-fermentation dry hopping is just too alluring to sure. ignore. Sure. And so, like, we're actually starting to, um, you know, we're starting to do some preliminary studies on, like, how could we potentially do Voodoo Ranger, uh, you know, our big flagship 150,000 right. barrel a year brand, um, either in a blended mid-firm application, a full mid-firm application, stuff like that. But then all of a sudden you're basically losing your entire, you know, yeast harvest sources. So, I mean, it's just, right. it, it's all, it, there's a lot of different ways to solve that problem. Right, um, right. And so I think it's just more like recognizing like what the problems are and especially um, encouraging smaller brewers, especially ones that are starting to scale. Like at a certain point, um, it's not all that good to, you know, just keep ditching your yeast with every batch, like, you know, going to a Gen Zero yeast right. and just buying from that. Like, eventually, like, you know, you want to scale up these brands and you want to hit a greater and greater volume and actually, like, deliver it to a greater number of people. Like, you're going to have to solve that problem. And there's lots of different ways to do it. But uh, pitch and dry yeast every time is not, like, at a certain scale, is just not cost effective for you. And it's really, it, it's a pain. Um Right. And You're so, talking about pallets of yeast then, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure, exactly. Sure. Um, let's talk a little bit more about that. And I also want to get into talking about a little bit about cannabis, since we've yeah. now been talking about all of these uh, terpenes and other compounds yeah. that exist both in hops and cannabis. Seems like a natural uh, segue. Um, but first, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email only for all-access subscribers 
premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. Also, this episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publishers of Small Brewery Finance by Maria Pearman, How to Brew by John Palmer, and Historical Brewing Techniques by Lars Marius Garshaw. Established in 1986, Brewers Publications has published more than 50 books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers alike. Visit brewerspublications.com to browse the complete catalog of books and ebooks. And coming soon to the Brewers Publications lineup will be a book yeah. from uh, from Ross right here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the book is on cannabis and beer, uh, which is interesting and exciting and kind of nerve wracking. And uh, you know, it's uh, I think a lot of it, there's some very natural parallels uh, to you know to the two topics. And I think it's also uh, you know really kind of the genesis of the book was. Uh, kind of a natural extension out of our work on the Hemperer, uh, you know, that was uh, an interesting beer that, uh, you know, really trying to be very forward thinking that like, uh, you know, as the, you know, seemingly incessant march of legalization comes on that, you know, more and more people are interested and exposed to cannabis in some for you know, way or another. And, uh, you know, especially us being in Colorado, like we've been on right. the front end of it. So, you know, felt very, uh, very prescient for us to, you know, release a beer, uh, just looking at, uh, you know, when I say cannabis, it's cannabis with a big C, uh, we're not talking marijuana here. We're actually talking industrial hemp, uh, right. which right. it's all the same plant. It's all the same species. There's nothing different from them. They, uh, they are literally the only legal definition is just one is, 0.3% THC or below, or one is above. Uh, so, so talk talk to me a little bit about this temporary process. This was a, yeah. a fascinating one that uh, I remember uh, talking to to folks over in the lab about a couple years ago. Yeah, um, you all went through an elaborate process of basically tearing down, you know, cannabis yes. using your GC mass spec, trying to figure out what it was what those ingredients were that gave it that kind of signature flavor and then trying to figure out how you could construct and rebuild that using legal, yeah. uh, you know, similar naturally occurring, you know, terpenes and, uh, and whatnot that create those, uh, that specific kind of signature flavor yeah. and do it in a legal way and a yeah. beer that could be sold, uh, you know, in 50 States, especially some of those places where, um, you know, they're not quite as forward thinking as here in Colorado. Yeah. Um, talk yeah. to me a little bit about that process and uh, what you found through going through that. Yeah. So, um, you know, it was it, that process started in late 2014, early 2015, something like that. Very recent after, um, you know, the farm bill in 2014 was passed, right. uh, basically allowed for uh, for the first time since basically the Second World War uh, for industrial hemp to be uh, cultivated mostly by research institutions, uh, yeah. you know, trying to get out in front of it. And so that had a lot of had a lot of really interesting ramifications. And so, um, you know, we were approached uh, by uh, a company which is now called New West Genetics, uh, which is kind of an offshoot organization out of uh, Colorado State University here in Fort Collins. Uh, and so more or less, they were kind of like, they're just hanging out in the tap room one day, happened to run into Peter, uh, Peter Buchart, and, um, and just like, hey, 
this might be interesting to you. Uh, and so like Peter grabbed me and a couple other people and we all like piled into a car and like went over to the greenhouses and just started like rubbing and smelling their hemp. Uh, and just, it was like, it's kind of like this light bulb moment went off just like, holy crap, this could be, you know, we already understand terpenes and terpene solubility and all that sort of good stuff through our, you know, use of hops. And so this seemed like a really natural progression behind that. And so, um, you know, that then, you know, kind of started this kind of frantic thing. One, we needed to understand what the hell this was and, you know, wh whether or not people were putting weird pesticides on it and all, you know, just like all <laughs> sure, the other sure. stuff, just like, well, right, should right. we really put this in beer? Like this, this could end poorly for us. But, uh, you know, it, it, to our it, kind of to our delight and surprise, um, you know, the the growing um, you know, the growing regulations around uh, growing industrial hemp um, are actually quite stringent. Mostly, uh, it was kind of at the time of the nascent CBD industry, uh, where, you know, basically you're just taking all the flowers and all the vegetative matter and just, you know, extracting it under, you know, supercritical CO2. So, you know, it was just kind of one of those that like, you know, any pesticides, any other like gnarly stuff that you would have is just going to go straight into your CBD extract. Right. So, you know, functionally, like a lot of these growers are growing close to, you know, growing close to being under like organic specifications. Yeah. So like yeah. it actually was a pretty, a pretty interesting and really high quality from a brewing value sort of thing, um, you know, a crop for us. Um, you know, then the, so then kind of as we like picked all that apart and found that, yeah, it actually could work. Then we're just like, all right, well, let's actually define this. And so that's where a lot of lab work started happening. Uh, some of it we we're able to bring into, uh, into the brewery ourselves. Uh, but, uh, you know, we also, we we're utilizing at the time, a lot of, a lot of labs, you know, even, right, right. even hemp while it was kind of legal. It's also, you know, we, we reached out and we're in frequent contact with the TTB, right. um, you know, just like, what can we legally do here? And so they were giving us guidance. And so we we're, you right, know, operating right. in compliance of their guidance, sure. but you know, for the most part, they're saying like, well, you can't, like you can put seeds and stems in there, but you can't put the flower. And we're kind of like, why? They're like, well, you know, it could have THC in it. It's like, so I'm like, all right, hang on a second. Like went home, home brewed a batch, like put a bunch of buds in there and then uh, shipped it off to like a, you know, state certified lab. It's just like, tell me if there's THC in there or even CBD for that matter. Right. And they came back. They're like, nope, non-detect. Didn't get a th huh. single thing. So just <laughs> presented that back to the because you did a cold side and mm -hmm. it did not. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. And you know, even though even though cannabinoids are um, you know ethanol soluble, but you know you have a beer at six percent, seven percent alcohol uh, by volume, like that's really not a very yeah, you know yeah. not it's not going to be all that effectively soluble. So you know, for for all intents and purposes, it was basically like the terpenes went into the beer. Um, that's what THCA doesn't become THC and until it's uh, decarboxylated. Decarboxylated. Yeah. So uh, heating step basically. Sure. Um, and so there there's other ways to decarboxylate, uh, but you know heat is the easiest way. Sure, so yeah, sure. we'll just we figured yeah just keep it all on the cold side. Yeah. We're not going to have to mess around with any of that. Uh, all that. Uh, but basically we went back to the TTB and just like, okay, uh, no cannabinoids in solution. What do you, what do you think? They're like, yeah, we're going to wait for the FDA. <laughs> just like, fuck. 
Um, and so, yeah. and so yeah. basically, like, it, you know, we kind of hit that point where, sure. you know, we, sure. we had already in a, in a non-official capacity, we had proven the concept that we could right, potentially right. put cannabis in beer and make something that's really delicious. And so, like, we also then basically while we were having uh, the cannabinoid profile run, we're also like, well, can you give us the terpene profile as well so we can actually, like, understand what's in solution here, what right. we should be targeting. And so the uh, kind of going from there, that was really then where we started splitting. We started, um, you know, kind of diving deeper into whatever literature we could find on cannabis, uh, using our own experiments and our own, um, you know, we even, uh, you know, solicited the help of, uh, there's actually a PhD, a guy by the name of Avery Gilbert in town here. Uh, he does a lot of work in the marijuana space, but uh, all from a sensory perspective. So okay. uh, actually like going through and, you know, a lot of our sensory Isn't people. It's amazing that there are and, PhD scientists that are, you know, specialized. It's crazy. I mean, it's, it's awesome. It's, what a world we live in. What now. a country. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I think as we got on, we just developed a, like a better and better lexicon, both from right, like right. a sensory organoleptic perspective and then also a, um, you know, from an analytical chemistry perspective. And so, um, you know, really we released the hemper basically, um, you know, with the TTB, we're just like, well, we want to release a spear. We have all of our ducks in a row, and they're just like, well, if you can do it with GRASS, uh, GRASS is an acronym for Generally Recognized as Safe Sources, um, then... The irony of that term is just... Rich, I know, it, it's rich. insane. Um, it, you know, if you can do that, yeah, uh, yeah. then then we'll give you approval on the beer. And yeah, so basically yeah. then we had to, you know, outsource the work to a flavor lab, basically saying right, like, right. here are all the compounds that we want in solution. This is how, this is how we want it concentrated. This is how we want it to look and finish beer. And um, yeah, they did a great job with it. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, if you've had the hemper before, like, you know, it, it tastes like weed. You oh, know, it, it doesn't uh, just taste like weed. <laughs> you open the bottle or the can um, and it, Pour it into a glass, and instantly everyone within thirty feet of you yep. knows what beer you just opened. Yeah, um, yeah. It tends to overtake a room, and you know, quickly dominate the aroma <laughs> of everything around it. So yeah, it's uh, it, it. There was definitely a bit of a when we did that at first. Um, you know, we had a couple of people question. It's just like. Can we dial that down a little bit? Like, is I in, you know, at a certain point we kept going back and forth on right, it. It's just right. like, all right, you know, we are one of the no, we were the first nationally re, uh, released cannabis beers. It's just like, you know, if you're it, having having that honor uh, of doing such a thing and like being so far out in front of it. Um, you better deliver the goods. I'd rather sure, like just sure. absolutely blow your hair back. Um, you know, as you know, hopefully as the hemper continues to go on and we, you know, further iterate it and, you know, we're still waiting for a ruling from the FDA, whether or not we can just put, you know, still have the same proof. We've repeated the process. We've yeah. looked at it a bunch of different ways. We're like, nope. Still no cannabinoids. Don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, I can um, only imagine what you do when you come up with double dry hemped hemp. Oh man, it's gonna be awesome. <laughs> oh man, it's uh well. It, and then the other thing is just like it, just thinking about the possibilities of just like all these ridiculous names in the cannabis world. Uh, you sure, know, just sure. all it. 
it's going to be awesome. Like it, just naming these things and like having it, it's going to be a blast. Uh, hopefully, if the FDA rules in our favor. But um, anyway, so yeah, that was kind of that was kind of the genesis of the Hemper. Sure, and then really, sure. um, I, I was approached by the Brewers Association about a year, year and a half ago, something like that, maybe yeah. a little bit longer. Uh, basically asking like, hey, we're interested in putting out a book on this. Um, are you interested in, in doing it? And um, I've never written a book before. Uh, it's uh, it's you know, writing a book isn't all that hard, except most people choose not to write books in, you know, like it's uh, yeah, yeah. It, for, you know, it, it's a lot of work. It's a lot sure, of it's sure. a lot of time. But, you know, it's like it's fun. It's a gratifying process. You know, it's really, yeah. you know, it's interesting to get in there. But, you know, it's a it's just a long and arduous process. Right, so, right. Um, you know, it. And so uh, really what the book is going to be, like it's, uh, you know, trying to take a very holistic perspective. It's very industrial hemp focused. Um, there is, you know, I do discuss marijuana uh, to a degree, but actually yeah. that's going to be, there's going to be a complimentary uh, book released with that. Oh. Um, a, a lot of the book is um, just getting, like introducing brewers and hopefully it will have some appeal outside of the brewing community but mostly targeted yeah. towards brewers like introducing them to uh what cannabis is uh, a bit of its history uh definitely doing quite a bit of a deep dive just on kind of a lot of the technicals right, uh, right. you know kind of the actual the you know the biosynthetic pathways of producing cannabinoids and terpenes and stuff like that which is really interesting especially when um you know it's mostly i mean since hops and cannabis are botanical cousins right. um there's actually like pretty much the same biosynthetic pathways that are made uh which is really interesting so you know i spent a lot of time kind of juxtaposing cannabis with hops in, right, in a way right. that would hopefully be interesting to brewers but mm -hmm. then um you know then it's uh kind of taking uh you know we'll see we'll see how the legal team uh does uh you know, weighs in on it, but you know, <laughs> then, you know, kind of transitioning towards like giving, right, right. giving brewers some really uh, good tools to think about cannabis and how that could potentially play out for their breweries. Yeah, uh, yeah. There'll also be a lengthy section on how to do things in a legally compliant way. And for the love of God, brewers, if you are listening, do not put CBD in your beer yet. Like just don't do it. Um, I saw, I saw a thing the other day, um, you know, companies are now starting to get sued by the FTC. Like, you know, granted, there there's a bunch of different things. One, yeah. you know, CBD is not federally compliant to be added to beer, so just don't do it. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, you also have a lot of people that you know, CBD companies, stuff like that. Like, oh yeah, CBD will cure the coronavirus. <laughs> CBD will cure your cancer. Like, you know, making very specific like functional claims um, that you know, for the most part, the FDA is treating CBD right now as a you know, as a food supplement right. um, or a nutritional supplement. And so, um, you know, the second you start making functional claims, all of a sudden it becomes like a regulated drug in the way that you know like doctors prescribe and everything like that so that that requires extra levels of compliance and all that sort of good stuff that none of these companies have and and that no one in that sector wants because yeah yeah um, yeah if if cbd becomes a drug then 
you know, the CBD seltzers and stuff like that that you're seeing, uh, those are illegal instantly. Like, right. you know, there's there's a reason even like, you know, you could even make an argument that, uh, you know, we'll still see what happens with CBD. But like, you know, you don't see breweries putting aspirin in their beer or, you know, right, ibuprofen right. or other stuff like that. Like, oh, hangover cure now. Like, no, that's <laughs> we can't do that. Uh, right. Right. Um, through through your uh, study and learning of these you know compounds that exist within cannabis and that impact uh, and the way that they overlap with hops, you know you mentioned that it will help brewers also understand the way they use hops. Yeah. Are there um, esters, uh, terpenes, thiols, etc. that you have found through that research process? that you think that all brewers should pay more attention to in all of their beers? Ooh, I mean, we've all got, yeah. you know, most of us have this hops poster that will show you the hops mm-hmm. and, the, you know, kind of show you how much oil of each of these things. they And they focus on a few of the major, you know, kinds of, uh, of compounds and hops. Um, are beyond that kind of simplistic data, are there other compounds that you think that the brewers should be paying attention to? Um, so I think it's, the short answer is yes. Um, I think especially within... And I knew with you there'd be a long answer also, <laughs> which is good, which yeah, is good. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I hope you guys like people that wax poetic. No, no, it's that's great. That's all you get, uh, all you get out of me. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, the, it, it, I think it's really like, it's, it's unexplored, I think, just, um, mostly in the flavor world, uh, I think for good reason, but like all of those sulfur fractions. And so, um, you know, polyfunctional thiols being a great one of those, uh, but then also, you know, uh, there's a whole litany of different compounds within like the sulfur odorant sort of category. Uh, And so like, and, you know, I think especially like when you think about cannabis, um, you know, just like that kind of skunky sort of aroma, like you always, you always need some degree of it just to be like, oh, yeah, uh, that's cannabis. Uh, right. You know? right. But um, and so I, I'm still the section of the book is hasn't been written yet. So uh, this is actually <laughs> really good. It, it, you're going to watch me like just kind of, you know, think about this in live raw form. But, uh, you know, it, I think it's, you know, since there there aren't all that many labs that can study it, but we know it's like powerfully flavor active. Yeah. So like, you know, all of these like very, you know, subpart per trillion, um, you know, fruity, Sulfur-based flavor compounds could be, you know, could be everything from like passion fruit to caddy to skunky to all that sort of good stuff. Like, really is impactful in your beer. It's mm. impactful in cannabis. It's impactful in hops. Yeah. And so, um, I think more so than anything, like getting, you know, having brewers understand, especially um, from like a juicy hazy IPA perspective, you know, especially knowing how volatile all of these compounds are. Um, it's one of these things that I you know, I think needs to be further studied in a way. Hopefully I can provide something useful to brewers, but, you know, just knowing that it, it's very complex and, you know, the book will touch on it, but sure. I'm not sure how well it's going to be able to actually cover it in depth. But, um, you know, getting brewers, especially like, you know, they want to have more 
shelf stable juicy hazy IPAs. I mean, it's a very it's a very prescient topic that right, you know, it, right. mostly it's the thiols that you know degrade and oxidize over time. So I mean, mm. I think part of that's just like a processing perspective of like how do you get um, you know how do you get good you, you know just overall like good you know, brewing practices and minimize oxygen right. ingress into your beer in general. But then also, like, how do you stabilize these compounds that, like, you know, that fresh, juicy IPA just off the canning line is nothing short of bliss. But, you know, a month and a half in, it's just like, what the fuck happened to this? So, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> sure, And sure. so I think it's... Um, and you've mentioned that a couple of times, that how volatile these, these uh, you know, compounds are. Um, in that brewing process, what have you found that helps decrease that uh, volatility that helps these not volatilize off and get blown off as yeast is producing CO2 and taking all of these flavors and compounds with it as, uh, as it escapes the fermentation. Oxygen, excuse me. Oxygen control is, you know, just one of the the best way. Um, so, I mean, I think it, it starts at dry hopping. So, I mean, I think even, um, I don't have hard data to back this up, but this is just my brewer experience right. here. But, you know, even just the sheer fact of, you know, like working in the pilot brewery, popping the top on the tank and chucking your hops in versus uh, we actually do have kind of like a solubilizing mechanism where we can actually flood it with CO2, mm. purge out all the oxygen and then like actively recirc uh, right, our beer right. through that. Um, I see a noticeable difference. I see especially amongst like thiol stability. Um, yeah. You know, so I think it starts at dry hopping. Um, you know, certainly it's a, um, you know, especially with, um, you know, just throwing dry hops in the tank during an active fermentation. Like it, you know, tends to be one of those practices where it's like, hey, you can kind of get away with throwing a bunch of oxygen in your beer because, you know, the yeast for the most part will take right. it up. But um, my, my gut feeling is that that process is introducing a bunch of staling compounds and oxidative compounds that are doing all sorts of things to your beer. And I think it's probably one of the leading indicators why a lot of juicy, hazy beers are not stable. Mm. Um, but then, you know, it's also then just oxygen, oxygen control. If you're pushing it over to a bright tank, um, you know, can line, bottling line, just all the, you know, kind of all the normal basics of it. And, you know, unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, there's some really great canning technologies out there that I think are really vastly improving yeah. just overall, like, you know, product quality on the back end. Um, but, you know, it, unfortunately, that technology is super expensive. And so, um, you know, only some brewers get to see the benefit of that. And right. that that sucks. Um and hopefully that'll change in the future. I, I think there's, you know, there's are some new can lines out there that are starting to go very small scale, relatively affordable, and actually right, should right. be able to provide better TPO specs than, and just overall like CanDO specs than, you know, what a lot of kind of the classic technologies have been. And so that's awesome. That's super great to see. And right. um, so I think the, those are the most important things. Um, you know, things that, you know, I think other things that you can think about, um, you know, the um, you know spunding your or you know, spunding your tanks, sure. um, you know, is starting to become a lot more popular amongst brewers, Not uh, especially in, in, in beers outside of lagers, huh? It, well, but I think it's uh, it's an unexplored topic. But right. I mean, I think especially like just thinking about you know overall like thiol odorants are 
yeah. highly volatile anyway, so you're probably blowing a decent amount of them out of your tank. If you can actually, uh, you know, put some top pressure on your tank, you right. might actually be able to keep more of that in solution. Uh, I have zero data to back that up, but it sounds right. So well, with I'll this impending it. CO2 shortage that we're right, all seeming exactly, to face right now, exactly. it might all make sense. And, uh-huh. uh, do you all do that? As it does it have an impact on the finishing of fermentation and the yeast performance? Um, yeah, you know, I think there there's a couple of big watchouts there, but, you know, I mean, definitely invest in the actual valves. Like, don't just cap your tank and stuff right, like that. Right. We've done that and, oh. you know, to <laughs> mixed results. Right, um, right. You know, especially like when you're, you know, especially if you're thinking about like mid from dry hop beers yeah. where you're having hop creep, other stuff like that, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm going to finish at this point. I could, you know. All of a sudden, you just start running through your fermentation, and all of a sudden, you're overpressurizing your tank and doing all these other things right. that aren't super ideal. So yeah. invest in the tech. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I think it, it definitely, you know, there are yeasts. It, it definitely stresses your yeast out. So be yeah. be cognizant of that, um, especially if you have the capability to measure things like acid aldehyde, certainly diacetyl, stuff like that. Like right. that's going to be to your benefit. Um, I would say if you if you don't have those capabilities, you might want to consider not spunding your tanks. Right, but if you right. do, um, definitely like you know just watch out for those yeast stress factors. And, right. Uh, but you know it seems like directionally, at least just from totally anecdotal experience, like it seems like it really does a great job. So hmm. something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is next on your innovation horizon? What are you, uh, what are you excited about right now Um, outside of the topics like dry hopping and cannabis that we've already talked about? So are there hop varieties? Are there processes? Are there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we are, uh, plugging, I'm actually, I'm wearing a sweatshirt of, uh, our friends over at John I Haas. Um, thanks for the sweatshirt guys. Um, but uh, they actually, uh, they, you know, we were pretty instrumental in helping them out with uh, their Incognito product, uh, which right. is a, you know, kind of like a lossless kettle extract, uh, uh, varietal specific, mostly focusing on Citra and Mosaic right now. I think they're doing Sabro and Equinot, a couple other things. Uh, but uh, they're also developing a complementary product, uh, which they are, you know, still is more in beta test, uh, but basically the cold side equivalent of that. So mm. how do you how do you do something that's basically a true to type varietal specific lossless dry hopping product that you can throw whenever you want in mid fermentation and theoretically still be able to get your yeast back out. So that's. That's like really, and not really lose cool volume stuff. from the tanks. Exactly. Matter yeah. and yeah, yeah. You know, you got products like Cryo and other stuff like that from sure. YCH. Um, those products are great, um, but you know that only gets you kind of part of the way there. Uh, and so right. this is kind of like taking taking some of that thing to its logical conclusion. Hmm. Uh, and so. Um, you know that is a that's interesting. They're you know they're still actively developing that, but we're we're working with them and we're actually uh, plugging to our new uh, one of our new products, uh, Sour IPA, uh, which is a blend of our golden sour beer from our uh, from our 
world famous fooder forest uh, and then uh we just did you know basically like a, a hazy ipa with it so 100 percent citra and then um actually does feature a little bit of that product in there so we're we're starting to kind of take it to a bigger scale and understand how that behaves and looks and all that sort of good stuff so um you know we're getting we're getting a little bit of a sneak peek i'm sure other breweries are as well but um you know, definitely super exciting and sure, uh, sure. should be something that brewers should be able to get their hands on in the next couple of years. So let's talk about that sour IPA for a minute. Yeah. I, I'm just fascinated by this because typically speaking, I mean, you all make a lot of sour beer. Obviously, the market for that volume of sour beer is a little mm-hmm. different now. Definitely. Um, there was a point in New Belgium's history where, you know, the goal was to democratize sour beer and push it out in a at an in- inexpensive price point. Um, and have $12 bottles of La Folie all over the country. Yeah. Um, and that was a beautiful moment. And mm-hmm. then consumers said, oh, we don't want that anymore. <laughs> um, the, the the price doesn't matter to us. We want special. Yeah. You know, and yeah. we want fruit. And uh-huh. we want, you know, the we want it to feel like a... Uh, you know, a dramatic event when I open that for a friend mm-hmm. um, rather than this kind of democratizing of, of sour beer, which yeah. perfectly fine. Uh-huh. You know, consumers will tell you what they want, even if you have a different idea for, for what it is. Uh-huh. So now you have all this beer, a lot of <laughs> a lot of sour beer. And I know uh-huh. the sour sour isn't really your part of the of the, the brewery. Yeah. Um, you know, but but uh, being able to push that into. Yeah something like sour IPA and mm-hmm. use that, but also use it, you know, with that kind of depth of flavor that yeah. comes from the traditional souring process versus something like a quick sour. Yeah. Uh, had to be an interesting one. Talk to me a little bit about that process and how you even envision the complementary hazy IPA component yeah. to work with the blending of that golden sour. Yeah. Uh, well, I think kind of the, you know, we, we've had enough other, you know, really great examples of the style. I, I mean, it's certainly kind of in its infancy, sure. but, um, you know, it just, it, all sorts throughout the country. So, you know, right, we, right. we've definitely seen, you know, very, very well done examples of the style. So For I think sure. that gave us a bit of a good guiding light. Um, but I think at a certain point, um, you know, then it's also just like conceptually, we're just like, all right, so you have juicy IPA that's supposed to taste like fruit juice, right? Uh, what's the other component of fruit juice that um, that really doesn't deliver? It's the acid. And, you know, it's really something that, you know, acid in, you know, with any kind of fruit juice, it's right. just like, you know, you have aromatics, you have water, you have sugar, and you have acid. And like all those work very synergistically then to deliver that sort of thing. So we, you know, kind of within that, we're just like, all right, you know, that's being kind of our guiding light of just like, all right, if we're doing, if we're bringing the juice, you know, what we should probably bring the acid. And so um, that was that was kind of like, you know, the initial conversation of where things needed to go. Uh, I think fairly early on, we realized that like just doing basically a single hop citra, um, just juicy IPA, uh, one, you don't really see that from New Belgium. So it's just kind of like, yeah, we should probably do that. You know, like damn near everybody else does. Let's show our chops, you know, let's see what's up. So um, that was, you know, we coalesced around that idea fairly well. Uh, But then we were also like wanting to be highly cognizant that, you know, we also have a very established uh, example of the style in a somewhat different way in Le Terroir, uh, just a 
100% golden sour that's right. been dry hopped um, that, you know, we definitely didn't want to just be like Le Terroir light. We want to really kind of stand on its own legs, have its own, you know, have its own unique personality, live in the world in a very different way than Le Terroir does. Sure. Um, and Le Terroir, you know, when you taste that level of acidity and that kind of pH, mm-hmm. Um, and Litoire is one of my favorite beers in the world. It has been. I've written about it before. It's yeah. been in my year and best of beer lists. Um, it, that kind of level of pH and total acidity has a very dramatic effect on how those hops you know, are conveyed. Yeah. And so um, it tends to push all, you know, that Amarillo, I believe, is mm-hmm. Litoire, pushes it in a very specific direction that tastes like that hop at that acidity level, um, you know, and will certainly kind of change that orange fruitiness of something like Mm -hmm. Citra into more of a lemon lime kind of, you know, citrusy with a little more of a a sharp edge. So talk to me a little bit about kind of figuring out how to balance that piece so that the hazy (laughs) IPA still captures, you know, more of, you know, that kind of citrus character that you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, in... Exactly to your point, it's, uh, you know, we want it to be a hazy IPA that happens to be sour, not uh, sour hazy IPA. Right, it's a little, right. it's a little semantic, but, uh, it, but with sour IPA, wanting it, wanting it to be that like, you know, hazy IPA that happened to be sour, uh, it was, you know, bay yeah, we actually had a lot of learnings, not only through like dry hopping Le Terroir, but then also uh, way, well, relatively back in New Belgium's history, uh, we did do a uh, dry hopped kettle sour IPA called Hop Tart uh, back in our, you know, uh, that was probably 2013, 2014, something like that. But right. um, one of the real key learnings that we notice uh in that beer is that even if you if you introduce hops and again like we don't understand it fully but we know it's it's a real thing if you introduce hops into like a low ph environment they tend to extract and express in a very different way than if you like develop the ipa that you want and then introduce the sour beer not exactly sure how it works, yeah, but yeah. it's a real thing. Um, and so, like, I guess that lets you what dial the acid, you know, the total amount of acid and the pH, yeah, into you know. I mean, I can I can see how you could get it exactly where you want it, and you know, versus a process of traditional sour, which is more driven by where the culture wants to take yeah. that level of acidity. You know, definitely. Um, and yeah, so it. The control factor is key, uh, right. but then um, you know we tried it both ways. That like we just kind of introduced the yeah, yeah. you know we just blended it in when we were ready to dry hop and just kind of it's like well that would be easier. And then it's just like well this doesn't taste like Citra anymore. Yeah. It still tasted good, you know. It's still but it tended to have a bit more of that kind of like Le Terroir light sort of flavor sure, profile sure. to it. So um, that was a really critical insight that like you know just build the IPA that you want and get the flavors right and then introduce the sour and they tend to like the flavor tends to get a little less squirrely. I mean, certainly yeah, yeah. there's some, you know, there's some aging and, you know, maturation sort of characteristics that right. somewhat get applied to it, but it really does like, it lets the juicy IPA stand a little bit better. Uh, right. It just tends to be like a bit, you know, cleaner and clearer of like an expression of the hop along with the sour than necessarily like uh, doing it all where it just tends to have that really kind of like, it's a, 
You know, it's just kind of that like muddled, sour, hoppy and, you know, it's delicious and great, but it's just, uh, you know, when you already have a product in Le Terroir that has that very specific flavor profile, it's like, well, let's give them something different. Yeah. Um, You know, obviously with any kind of hazy IPA, that residual sweetness um, is, you know, creates body and it helps heighten those citrus flavors. But if you have that much residual sweetness in a beer that with you know where you now put a sour culture into it mm-hmm. um you know those sour cultures bread etc i mean they'll just eat that sugar uh and you know do you go through a pasteurization process before we, you do that just to yeah we do yeah. um just that that's just an unacceptable yeah, variable for sure, um, for sure you know like later is live and like yeah. you know we do a lot of things to really manage for that, that for sure like, for sure you know there's you know there's certainly already the dry hop creep factor of it uh we bottle condition it which actually helps like kind of reduce that total right. uh real extract in in the package there yeah uh, which is good uh but then we also just expect it that like yeah it's gonna be kind of squirrely and unruly and kind of does what it wants to do and that's great it's creeping literally yeah. i hadn't even thought about that yeah how long does that that take to kind of bottle condition and clean up about five weeks five weeks okay. uh yeah so um you know we also so we dry hop it um you know lauren could speak to it far better sure, than i can sure. but um you know it's uh it, i we dry hop it mostly on whole cone hops. Yeah. Um, so it, there's reasons for that that escape me at this point. Uh, but, you know, then I think we kind of let that sit at, you know, relatively like, you know, just kind of normal fooder temperature, right. uh, all that sort of good stuff. So I think, you know, even within that, I think the Brett, you know, kind of gets a, a, a first crack does, at a little yeah, bit of the sugar. Yeah. And then we'll introduce the sugar, bottle condition it, and then we'll condition it for around five weeks, mm. um, potentially longer. I mean, we're just sure. kinda, we're looking for diacetyl reduction and all right, the right. classic stuff. But that tends to get a lot of the a lot of the hop creep out of there, or at least yeah. like all the you know all the sugars that the hops have now made right. uh, will clean up fairly nicely. Um, you know, there's still um, you know we definitely see a little bit of extra attenuation even in yeah. package after that, but uh, for the most part we're getting down to a level where there's just there's just not that much more sugar it's, it's pretty dry yeah. before it goes in there sure yeah sure sure um well ross koenigs thanks for uh for join, joining me on this episode of the podcast yeah, thanks jamie uh, nearly two thousand breweries across the u.s canada and mexico partner with gnd chillers old orchard are the industry's juice blending experts hop steiner is your premium supplier for quality hops and hops products Fermentist yeasts are the obvious choice. Brewers Publications has published more than 50 books for amateur and pro brewers. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Um, I would normally ask where people can find you, but it's New Belgium. You can pretty much find them everywhere. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) What's uh, one or two beers, uh, new beers that uh, you've had a hand in making that uh, everyone should go out there and try? So if it's Voodoo Ranger, uh, I have my hand in it. So uh, the Voodoo Ranger portfolio. And then uh, if you can get your hands on our sour IPA, like it is very worth checking out. It is it's an awesome beer cool well ross gannings thank you for joining me on the podcast thanks so much yeah cheers appreciate it cheers this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craft beer brew